to Gracious Words. Gracious Words is taken from the weekly women's Bible study taught by Cheryl Broderson at Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California. We behold your glory, God, in the face of Christ. It shows us who you are, revealing who you are. Spiritual dullness can creep in unnoticed, allowing us to drift away. Our relationship with Jesus then becomes a routine, and we lose our passion and miss out on the fullness of joy Jesus has promised us. But Jesus is calling us today into the fullness of His joy. We will come before you, Lord, in wonder, wonder. We will fall on our knees and surrender, we surrender to you. And now here is part two of Cheryl's message titled, problem of dullness. I was thinking all these thoughts and how we've made communion this dirge, like you killed Jesus. Look what you did to Jesus. Look what he had to suffer for you. You terrible, terrible people. Go ahead. Take that. Take that wafer. Drink that grape juice, you sinners. And when we're singing, you died. It hurt. We're bad people. And I thought, you know, I feel like God wants us to celebrate, to say, look what the Lamb of God has done for us. Look at how much he loved us. Look at the promise. Our sins are completely forgiven, removed as far as the east is from the west, and he will remember them no more. Look at the body of Jesus that he says, look, my death became your death. You don't have to die because I died for you. We're to celebrate the Passover. And I was just feeling this so strongly. And We're at communion at the retreat. And I was like, Lord, make this a celebration. Make this a celebration. And Shannon Quintana started to play, Jesus is calling. And there's a pause. And somebody's cell phone rings. Not the, but the, why? Because Jesus was calling. And you know what he was saying? Celebrate. And you know what everyone started doing? Celebrating. You couldn't help but laugh. There was no way you could hold it in, especially because it was a holy moment. You had to just break out and celebrate. We miss the joy. In the presence of the Lord is fullness of joy. Fullness. There is no greater joy than when you come into the presence of God. There is joy. And we just said, there's joy in the Lord. There is joy in the Lord. We are to feel God's joy. We are to feel God's love. We are to feel God's grace and his pleasure. And we are to feel his truth. You know those times when you're like, this is truth. You feel it. You just feel the truth. His attributes are not only to be known, but to be felt. But dullness will keep us from God's greatest gifts. God wants to reveal Jesus to us, Jesus' greatness, his unfathomable compassions for us, his great eternal accomplishments for us, his continual grace to us in his love. He wants to reveal to us the adventure of our own lives, the joy 
He wants to reveal to us his grace in giving us the friends we have and the miracles of our lives. But dullness will stagnate our spiritual lives and leave us paralyzed. No spiritual growth, no spiritual insights, no spiritual understanding. People will have to explain things to us. And we'll be going around going, why? Why did God allow this? Why did God allow that? After my dad's death, you know, I wanted to take some time just to mourn myself. I, he was the best daddy in the whole wide world to this little girl. He used to call me sunshine, called me angel. Every time I saw him every time. And I found myself with the people of God having to go, it's going to be all right. Chuck's in heaven with Jesus. He's not dead. He's in heaven. In fact, I really feel he's hanging around with David right now. He always wanted to meet David. I asked him who the first person he wanted to meet in heaven was. He said it was David and then Paul. And I think that he's with David and he hasn't met Paul yet because he's so busy with David doing slingshots, which was one of his favorite things jumping, you know, climbing up mountains, doing everything he ever wanted to do, feeling his full vigor, his full strength, the eternal youth. But I had to comfort people and nobody was comforting me. I don't mean that as a, as an insult, but he was my dad. (laughs) He was more than just a pastor to me, though. He was my pastor. He was my dad. But what happened to the people of God that sat under that teaching? They had to be comforted. It's all right. Jesus is still on the throne. Chuck is just closer and seeing it. It's all right. By this time, you should be comforting others. By this time, you should be able to take these spiritual truths and give them to others. You should be seeking how you could comfort, how you could explain truth to others rather than always having to be comforted and be told the truth. It's time to grow up spiritually. It's time to take our place. It's time. It's time to leave the boredom with spiritual truth, with the promises of God saying, I've heard that already. I've already sung that song. No way. It's time to go deeper with the Lord. It's time to get interested in what God is doing in his church, what God is doing in this world, and what God is doing in people's lives. It's time to leave the discontent behind, looking for something more, looking for something else other than Jesus to inspire. You see This is what dullness will do. It will bore you, make you disinterested, make you discontent, isolate you so that you will want to withdraw from Christians and believers, feel misunderstood, and feel like an outsider when everyone else is excited and invested in. The band Love Song used to get up when I was a child. I remember the band Love Song. They used to sing, Hey, have you lost the feeling? Don't you hear the music anymore? Hey, have you tried to listen, but you think you've heard this song before? How can we stop this dullness? How can we stop the spiritual passion in our lives? You see, spiritual dullness is a reality 
And the Hebrew believers that the author was writing to were suffering from spiritual dullness. And because of their spiritual dullness, they were beginning to drift away and they were in jeopardy of losing spiritual ground. As Jesus said in Matthew 13, 12, for whoever has to him more will be given and he will have abundance. But whoever does not have even what he has will be taken away from him. You know, at 58 years old, which is what I happen to be, even though when I went to vote, the guy says, I hope you don't mind, but I think you look much younger than what your age is. I'm thinking, you're reading my age. What are you doing? Never mind. He said, I looked younger. It's all right. Go ahead. Look at my information. Go ahead. Read it all you want. But you know, I'm being told over and over again, use it or lose it. You know how they say that to you when you, when you get over 40? They say, you know, you got you to gotta keep working on your muscle strength and on your arms. And, you know, my son-in-law said, mom, that's what he calls me, even though he's only 17 years younger than I am. Mom, you need to work your muscles. You, you got to do it or you'll lose it. And he told me to get five pound weights and I did. And I set them to the side and I went out and I got four pound weights. So I have, I have five pound, four pound, three pound. And the ones I'm using right now are two pound. I figured any weight will do. I told him, you know, I'm doing the two pounds because I have to do reps. But we have to keep our muscles active or you lose muscle strength. I can tell that I'm using two pounds because I went to screw these screws in to some Ikea furniture, which is meant to frustrate men and lead them to Jesus. (laughs) And I was just trying to get the thing And I was like, okay, it's time to go to the three pound. (laughs) Enough said about that. But these people, their hearts were beginning to harden. And they were thinking of returning to the rules, rituals, temple practices. And this happened because they began to put these things on the same level as Jesus. You see, dullness starts when you put anything Anything, remember Martha with housework, anything on the same level as Jesus. When you put any, anything, any person at the same level of Jesus, when you put husband or children, or in this case, Moses on the same level as Jesus, or you put the law, what you're doing, your work that you're doing for God on the same level as Jesus. When you put rituals on the same level as Jesus, when you put sacrifices, the things you're giving to God on the same level as Jesus and what he's done for you, or when you put the temple or the church on the same level as Jesus, when you do this, or you put priest or pastor on the same level as Jesus, when you do this, you devaluate Jesus. And when you devaluate Jesus, Dullness will set in or even put your trial. Who is stronger, the trial or Jesus? The trial or Jesus? Jesus stands alone. Whenever we place or substitute anything for Jesus, we replace it or we give it equal value, whether it's relationship, a ministry, a service, a work, a tithe, a sacrifice, or ourselves. Dullness will result And the author of Hebrews wanted to reveal to these believers the glory, the grandeur, the greatness, the goodness of Jesus. But he was concerned 
concerned that spiritual dullness would keep them from understanding, receiving, embracing the glory, the grandeur, the goodness and the greatness. Throughout this book of Hebrews, beginning here, especially in this chapter five, we've already heard these great things about Jesus, but now the author is gonna pull back the curtain and he's going to give you the proof of Jesus' greatness, grandeur, and goodness. He's gonna pull back the curtain and he's going to show you the greatness of Jesus' person, the greatness of his great condescension, how great his position in heaven is and his willingness to humble himself for our sake, to see the greatness of his accomplishment through his suffering in the cross, to see the greatness of what he now offers and gives to us. There is absolutely no one like Jesus. He is the ultimate height priest. So the author begins by outlining the requirements of a high priest in verses one through four. He had to be among men. He had to be a man. He had to be appointed by God. He had to offer gifts and sacrifices for sins. He had to be compassionate on the ignorant, those without a knowledge or understanding of God, and on those going astray in order to call them back to God. He needed to understand the weakness of men, so he had to be beset by weakness and know the limits of humanity, what men were capable of doing and what men were incapable of doing so he could make intercession. Because the high priest was human, he had to make an offering first for his own sins and then for the sins of the people. He had to fully associate with the people, fully associate, be one of them so he could intercede for them. We're told that no one could assume this priesthood or take it for themselves. They had to be called by God, even as Aaron was called to it in Exodus 28.1 where God distinguished Aaron and Aaron's sons from all the people of Israel, from all the tribes, the tribe of Levi and in the tribe of Levi, Levi, the sons of Gershom, of the sons of Gershom, it would be Aaron and his sons by name. The author now shows in verses five through 10, how Jesus fulfilled all these requirements. Jesus did not presume or take the office of high priest for himself. He was called by God. The author quotes Psalm 2-7, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, really quickly, I want to give you just a little background. The author throughout Hebrews, when he uses a quotation, he uses the Septuagint, which is the Greek translation of the Hebrew Bible. Your Old Testament, your, your Bible right now, the King James or New King James or HCSB, then NLT, your Bible is translated straight from the Hebrew into English. But the Septuagint, again, it was translated in the third century BC by 70 to 72 Jewish scholars. They tried to choose six from each tribe. It was commissioned by Ptolemy, who was a ruler in Egypt, descended from one of the generals of Alexander the Great, And it was translated in Alexandria, Egypt. And it was translated into the spoken Greek of that time. So it would be 
what the New Living Translation is to the King James, the Septuagint would be to the Hebrew Bible. So that's why sometimes when you look at these quotations and you go to where it's drawn from, you're like, wait, it's different. That's why. So we know this about the author of Hebrews. He knew Greek and he had the Septuagint. That's why a lot of people believe this was written by Apollos, who was an Alexandrian Jew. This is just a sideline and boy, am I so off my notes, but it's so interesting to me. But it was written, um, he knew, and remember how we read in Acts, how he could prove from the scriptures eloquently, irresistibly, how Jesus was the Messiah, the son of God. And so every quotation in Hebrews is from the Septuagint. But what he says here is, you are my son, today I have begotten you. Now, you're saying, doesn't begotten mean I just sired you? I mean, you're my son. It does, but this was the chosen son. So in that day, a father, a Hebrew father, even a Roman father, would choose one of his sons to be the heir, to be the one who would take over the family, who would be the one to carry out the father's wishes, the father's desire to carry on the family name, to carry on the family traditions, to carry on the family business, to carry on the family battles. Today, I have begotten you. Philip II of Macedonia had many sons, but he chose Alexander, his son, who became Alexander the Great when he was 16 years old and he publicly had a ceremony where he announced that he had begotten Alexander. And now Alexander would be sent out at 16 as the general over all the troops of Philip II. All the troops of Philip II were now at the disposal of Alexander as he was begotten by the father to go out and fight the battles. Philip II. We know he was absolutely victorious. Later, in 67 AD, Vespasian, who was a general, who was the general in charge of the Holy Land of bringing the Hebrews back into subjection to Rome, he becomes the emperor of Rome. And when he becomes the emperor of Rome, he chooses his son Titus. He had many sons, but he chose Titus in a public ceremony and announced, today I have begotten you. And what he did at that moment was he put all his troops under the jurisdiction and authority of Titus. And Titus went and began to fight the battles of his father and bring all of the nations, not just the Jews, but the Egyptians, anyone who was in rebellion, he went, fought against them and brought them under subjection to his father, the emperor in Rome. I say this because I want you to understand that these people understood what it meant that Jesus was the son of God, the begotten. They didn't think because there's this horrific doctrine going around that God is a cosmic child abuser. And I had this man that I was sharing Jesus with down at the beach who said, I don't want to listen to anybody that would kill their child. And I'm like, man, you don't have a clue talk about pearls before swine and holy things before dogs. I was you know, getting a little mad. I wanted to say, then go to hell if you want to, go to hell if you want to, but I didn't. No, the grace and love of Jesus overrode me, but I was like so mad. You know, it's like, don't you understand? This is glorious. This is 
awesome. Jesus was 33. He didn't go like to the cross with, well, we're going to hear about this. Let's go on. You are a priest forever after the order of Melchizedek. Now this is a higher order, a holier order. And there, it predates Aaron's appointment. It is an order that Abraham recognized and respected. It is both a royal and priestly order, whereas Aaron's priesthood was limited to priesthood alone. But this is a different order. And we are going to get more into this in chapter six and especially in chapter seven. We're just going to explode it. We're going to pound it. But in verse seven, we're told that Jesus was human. See, he had to be taken among men, right? And it says he had days of his flesh. Jesus lived in a human body. We're told that he offered up prayers and supplications. And it says vehement cries or strong cries, pleadings. And, and, and battle cries. I mean, this is deep. He wept before God who was able to save him from death. Jesus was fully human and fully God. He had the full human experience. He prayed, he wept, and he had God say no to his prayers. It was important that Jesus pray and say, if it be possible, let this cup pass for me because he had to know what it felt like for us when God says no to our prayers. Did you ever think about that? He said no to the Holy Son and said, you must. So that when God says no to us and you must, Jesus understands. He can empathize with us. We're told again in verse eight, he was not exempted from suffering, though he was the son of God, that he learned obedience through the things he suffered. That's the Greek word, methano. And it means he increased his knowledge. You see, Jesus as the son of God is God himself. He knew suffering theoretically, but now he knows it experientially. He felt it. It's one thing to talk about it. And it's another thing to experience it. It's the difference between being a heart surgeon and a heart patient. Jesus as the heart surgeon became the heart patient. He went through the school of suffering. He learned obedience through the things he suffered. He felt the whole human experience. He knows the cost of our obedience. And I want you to think of this. The cost of his obedience was death. And the cost of our obedience is life. The cost of his obedience meant bearing the weight of the sin of the world. The cost of our obedience results in freedom from sin. His obedience meant separation from God. And our obedience means reconciliation to God. His obedience meant becoming a curse. So our obedience could result in being blessed. And then verse 9 It says, having been perfected, he became the author of eternal salvation to all who obey. Jesus accomplished and completed his mission. He perfected it. He fulfilled the appointment of high priest. He did everything that was necessary as high priest in bringing us before God, in making atonement for our sins. He is the author, the reason, the cause, the initiator of our salvation. He is the way of our salvation. He is the reason and the means by which anyone who obeys can be saved. And he is eternal. He is always and forever the means of salvation, constant and unchanging. We'll get into more of this in chapter seven. The author wants to go so much deeper. 
the author wants to take these Hebrews so much deeper. But he senses that they're glazing over. He senses that they're already dull, but he wants to take them into the glory of Melchizedek for them to see the relation between Melchizedek and the glory of this priesthood and the greatness and the superiority of Jesus' order. These are things that are hard to explain. You have to listen attentively. The author of Hebrews was writing to believers that were suffering from spiritual dullness and drifting away from the Lord. They returned to their rituals and temple sacrifices, consequently replacing Jesus and devaluing what he had done. Spiritual dullness will set in when we put anything on the same level as Jesus. The author of Hebrews wanted these believers to see the glory, grandeur, and greatness of Jesus, that he is their high priest, far superior than any ritual, sacrifice, or person. We hope you have been blessed by today's Bible study. For more information about the Gracious Words radio program and the teaching ministry of Cheryl Broderson, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. Coming up next time on the Gracious Words program, we'll continue to look at Jesus, our high priest, as we continue our series, Our Great Faith in the Book of Hebrews with Cheryl Broderson. We do hope you make plans to join us. Again, for more information, please visit our website at graciouswords.com. This program is sponsored by Calvary Chapel, Costa Mesa, California.